O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Cross Point. How are we doing? <laughs> Come on. How many of y'all had a good Thanksgiving? Yes, yes. Can, can we liven up a little bit in here? How many of you guys had a good Thanksgiving? Woohoo! Thank you. Good, good. I'm going to get this mask off of here. Give me a minute. So, um, my family, we went camping. And uh, I have the luxury of a father-in-law with an RV. Um, if you know that luxury, then you know that RV camping is what we call glamping. And uh, we had a really great time and enjoyed um, a uh, ham dinner. Um, it was much easier to bring a honey-baked ham with us than to make a turkey. Uh, but we had a wonderful time together, and we have so many reasons to give thanks. So for all the negative press that 2020 has gotten, I want to remind us of some things that we can be thankful for. There's a pastor who wrote an article about gratitude, and he, uh, his name's Eric Davis, and he entitles it, By the Time You're th- You Turn 30. By the time you turn 30, you have taken about 252 million breaths. That's 252 million times where your diaphragm and lungs did their thing. How many of those were you consciously and effortfully ensuring that you breathed? Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, His steadfast love is endures forever. By the time you turn 30, you've breathed about 26,500,000 gallons of air. That's the equivalent of the amount of air that could fill the building whose dimensions were 100 foot long by 100 feet wide and 350 feet tall. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. By the time you turn 30, you have eaten roughly 50,000 pounds of God's food, about the weight equivalent of 10 to 12 cars. This um, doesn't count Thanksgiving, by the way. (laughs) Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. By the time you turn 30, you have drank about 4,500 gallons of water, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Your eyes have processed about 1,000 terabytes of data from God's world. That total amount would fit on 250,000 DVDs. How often were you consciously and effortfully thinking, Okay, eyes, be sure to process all this data. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. God has made your heart beat about one billion times. A billion with a B. How many of those billion thumps were you consciously 
and effortfully thinking, okay, body, make my heart beat again, again, and again. And while you do that, make sure my mitriol, trisupid, aortic, and pulmonary valves are all opening and closing and doing their thing at just the right time. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. By the time you turn 30, God has made your heart pump about 12 million gallons of blood through your body. That's 381,000 barrels of blood pumped smoothly throughout your entire body, and it takes the heart less than 60 seconds to pump blood to every single cell in your body. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 9.1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Maybe for a moment we can meditate on the wonderful deeds of God this year. What are the wonderful deeds of God that have taken place in your life this year? Maybe we can recount on the things that God has done, the blessings that God has provided for us and For a moment, just a moment this morning, we can give thanks to the Lord. Would you join me in this prayer of thanksgiving? Father, I thank you so much that, Lord, you you are gracious. You give good gifts to your children, Lord. That, Lord, as we come and gather this morning, Lord, we have reason to lift our voices to you. Because we have a God who is generous. We have reason to sing praises to you, God, because you are worthy of our praises because of your love and affection that's poured out upon us. And Lord, when we give thanks to you for your wondrous deeds, Lord, we know that even greater than the blood that pumps through our veins is the blood that was spilt for our salvation. And Lord, we give thanks to you because of your great and wondrous deeds. We love you, Lord, and we lift up and exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm 131. If you open your Bible, you'll see that it's, it's one of the shortest chapters in all the Scripture. Now, let me let you on, in on a little hint. Just because it's a short Psalm doesn't mean you're going to get a short sermon. (laughs) Uh, Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, he says, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Why, Why would Psalm 131 be one of the longest psalms to learn? Because none of us are sufficiently humble. And this is a psalm on humility. In fact, humility is a lesson that we are constantly learning. Humility is the lesson of a lifetime. Here's one thing that's true of our lives, is we can all be prideful enough, but none of us can be humble enough. We can all have plenty of pride, but we all can't have plenty of humility. In fact, the big idea for our time together today is that as we grow as Christians, We grow in humility. Humility is the soil in which God grows us as believers in Jesus. Humility is the soil in which God plants us in and sees the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Humility 
is what God is growing in his people. We're going to look at how we define humility. If you would uh, see the first verse here. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The uh, author of this psalm, if you read uh, just below the heading, is King David. King David is the choir master of the psalm. He's leading the nation of Israel through this psalm. When I think about King David's life, I wonder what might have qualified him to sing the song of humility. If you think about David's life, King David's life, you you see the, the highs. When God chose David from among his brothers to be the king of Israel before there was ever an inclination that David could ever be king. And then later on in David's life, his pride and selfish ambition going straight to his heart, causing him to have an adulterous affair. Later, to murder one of his most loyal generals of his armies in order to cover up that affair. What would qualify King David to sing the song of humility? Well, you look back at one chapter... Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. The reason why David could sing the song of humility is because God granted King David a heart of humility by giving David what he ultimately needed in forgiveness. And so if we're defining humility right now, we know that humility starts with these words, the first words of Psalm 131, O Lord. Humility starts with us acknowledging the Lordship of God in our lives. Humility starts with our surrender. And so what qualified David to be the choir master of Israel was David was surrendered to the Lord. He was submitted to the Lord. David knew that there was a greater king. David knew that there was a higher authority. David knew that he had to follow the Lord, that he was but a servant, and the Lord his master. And we see that David brings out three elements of humility that are important for us to define. If we're going to understand humility, we have to to bring our lives under the Word of God, in submission, in surrender, under the Word of God. You know, religion believes that our our, our faith isn't about a life-transforming relationship, but it's about morality. Oftentimes, the way we can confuse religion with Christianity is we think that, yes, Jesus does save me, and so I pray a prayer, and I'm saved, and then it's up to me to live kind of a good and moral life as best as I can. Let's not go crazy here, but kind of a good and moral life. We go to church as much as we can. We give as much as we can. And when we need help, we call upon God. And then when we die, or in the unlikely event that Jesus Christ returns before we die, then he he takes us to heaven if we've been good enough. That's not Christianity. That's not a life that's submitted to the Lord. In fact, the thing that that lacks is submission. It lacks lordship. Because Jesus is not just 
for our salvation, but Jesus is for our sanctification. Jesus is for our growth. And the way that we understand humility is a life that's surrendered to Christ in every facet, in every dynamic. And David brings out three different dynamics that's important for us to understand this life of humility, the soil of surrender. One is the heart. The heart. He says, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. Much of what we do, much of what we think, much of what we say, it all comes from the heart. And our hearts aren't born to give, to, you know, just beating for God's glory. I wish that were the case. If you've raised kids for long enough, you would know at some point that they're going the other way. It's more about me, me, me. We're going to talk about that just a little bit later. But our hearts are predisposed not for God's glory, but for my glory. Not for God's exaltation, but for my exaltation. And we want life to where it's on my terms and it's about my plans rather than God's plan. My ways rather than God's ways. My glory rather than God's glory. Even David struggled with that. Selfish ambition. Vain glory. Part of the challenge with submitting to God means that we surrender our lives to Him. And we say, God, I want... I want for my life what you want for my life. Nothing more. And certainly nothing less. If we can live that life of surrender, it means that we're submitting our hearts to God. We're trusting God to, to bring our hearts under the microscope of His grace and mercy because the promise of Scripture isn't that God's going to transform your behavior. The promise of Scripture isn't that God's going to transform your morality or the things that you do. But the promise of Scripture is that God gives you a a new heart. Not a heart beating of the flesh, but a heart beating of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us. He causes us to be made new. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That we... Even today, would allow our hearts to be, to be molded, to be shaped, to be transformed. God can do it right now. It's not a go home and, and, and change me, God. It's a change me right now, O oh Lord. I need it. I need you to change me. Second thing that we see as part of humility is our eyes. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. Eyes that are raised too high are eyes that look down upon others. If our heart deals with primarily our relationship with God, where we stand in our relationship with God, God is holy and we are submitted and surrendered to Him, then our eyes deal with our relationship with others. That we don't stand above anyone else. That at the foot of the cross, everyone's ground level. Right? God has made us all equal to one another, that no one stands above anyone else. 
This is important for us to understand in our society. There's no ethnicity or race that stands above any other ethnicity or race. There's no economic status that makes you better than anyone else. There's no way of morality or way of life that that makes you better than an immoral person. But it's simply us realizing that we are made in the image of God and we are image bearers of His glory And the reason why our eyes can be level with the person to our left and the person to our right is because God had made us all level at the foot of the cross and there is no one that stands above Him, but we are all in need, equally in need of God's grace. And so we understand that no one, no one should be looked down upon. Jesus illustrates this point with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, he says, uh, you you read this, this line, he says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So if, if you want to know the, the, the people who Jesus was talking to with this parable, it were those who trusted in themselves. It were those who thought they were righteous and because of their righteousness wanted to treat others with contempt. He continues, two men went up into the temple to pray. Think about going into a church, being present in worship together. Two men were going up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. There's already a relational dynamic in play there. Pharisees were those who were obedient to the law. And we see from the scriptures that Pharisees found a righteousness in themselves. It was a righteousness in themselves because they believed that they were obedient to God's law. And because they were obedient to God's law, it made them righteous. So the righteousness was in themselves. But there's also a tax collector. Well, tax collector were looked down on by the Pharisees, especially if a tax collector was a Jew, because if a tax collector was a Jew, that means that he was further punishing his people from the Roman Empire. Roman Empire was using him to gain from his brothers and sisters' backs money that did not belong to Rome, and he was using that for himself. But he finds himself in the same room to worship with a tax collector. What does the Pharisee do? Well, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You can imagine he's looking at this tax collector in the gathering of worship. I thank you that I'm not like him. He says, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives these words to those who find a righteousness in themselves and a contentment against others. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The, the man who, who realized he was a sinner and needed God's mercy is the man who 
went to his house justified rather than the man who found a righteousness in himself. Why is that? Because someone who finds themselves sufficiently righteous without Christ is one who doesn't need the mercy of God. Church, we all need the mercy of God today. The reason why we give thanks to God over Thanksgiving, I mean, it's not primary. I know it's a primarily a, a, an American holiday, but for me, it's become a habit of grace reminding me of God's mercy when I don't deserve it so I can give thanks. When I have a meal that God has provided with his good food as a good gift, I can be reminded that all these things are not the fruit of my hands, but the fruit of the soil that God has given us and the land that he has made so that we could reap the bounty from it. Everything belongs to him. And so our eyes, they don't see things with haughtiness. Or, or looking down on others, or, or covetousness, looking at what someone has and thinking that should belong to me, or, or comparisons, thinking that, that I should be where they're at and they should be where I am at because I've worked harder, I've done better, I've prayed more. But we understand that everything is a gift that God gives and because of that, we cry out for mercy. Josiah, he Uh, wrote the devotional for this week, and he says, it's much easier to commend ourselves than we think. And to be fair, it certainly has its advantages. We may earn respect or influence or increase our status or position. Being humble is also more difficult than, than we'd like to think because it means that we must be willing to lose something. And often that something is what we hold most dear. However, like most things in the kingdom of God, there's a paradox that we need to embrace. To be exalted is to be humble. No book or TED talk on achievement or success will tell you that, but it's right in the epicenter of the gospel. Think about with me that though he was rich, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The epicenter of the gospel is the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can recount his wonderful deeds. And that work that Jesus Christ has done doesn't make us prideful. Oh, look what I've done. It actually says I've brought nothing. I've brought nothing here. And it says, look what Christ has done. Thirdly, our preoccupations. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Our preoccupations are the things that we engross our lives in. They're the things that occupy our mind, our heart, and our eyes. Our preoccupation is kind of the thing that our heart tells us to do. Our eyes are telling us to achieve. But we don't occupy, our preoccup- we don't occupy ourselves with things that we shouldn't be concerned with. David says things that are too great and too marvelous for me. When I was, when I was younger, believe it or not, I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to sing in front of the stage so I can identify with 2004 uh, American Idol contestant William Hung. American Idol contestant William Hung came before the, the, the judges. Paula Abdul, Simon Cowell, Randy Jackson, and he had his time to shine. He was going to sing the hit song by Ricky Martin. 
And as he began to sing his song, he got about 10 seconds into it, and Simon Cowell rears his head back, and he says, okay, okay, okay. He says, look, you can't sing, you can't dance, what do you want me to say? And William Hung says, I'm just following my dreams. And then Simon says, and William Hung also says, he says, I've had no, I've had no professional training, and Simon replies, he says, well, there's the understatement of a century. And then with his head held low, he walks out. But he's endeared to Americans because we can all understand that statement. Follow your dreams. Be what you want to be. You can do anything that you want to do. That's the mantra of our society today. That's what they tell us that we're to teach our kids. That's the gospel of self-actualization. But do you know that, that we don't have to submit to that? And the reason why we don't have to submit to that is because we are not made to be who we want to be. God has prepared beforehand these incredible things that you should walk in them. We are made to be who God has made us to be. And when we submit ourselves to our, 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 the lordship of God, then, then we can truly let go of what we think our life is to be and trust in what God has made us. We, we, we can all be concerned with this, this big mysterious thing called the will of God. What's the will of God for my life? When we say we want to know the will of God, we're talking about the secret or the hidden will of God. We don't know the secret or, or hidden will of God. That, that's what's too high for us. We can't understand what God is doing. This is why when certain things happen, especially tragedy, we say, God, why? Why me? Why now? How did this even happen? And it preoccupies our heart because we say, this wasn't a part of my plan. But when we trust God, we see his revealed will as he begins to show us how he uses all things for his glory. And one of the things that God teaches us with his revealed will, that's the will that he's given us through the word of God, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. When God shows us his revealed will, what we're commanded to do is trust in him. And when we trust in him, we trust that God's going to do what he's going to do in my life. And that's what I want to do. Because anything that God wants for me is what I want for me. And our preoccupations are given completely and totally to him. The second thing related to humility is that we must cultivate childlikeness. Verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a, wheeled, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. The calmed and quieted soul is something that we're unfamiliar with in the world around us because there's so much noise, isn't there? There's so many things that are distracting us. There's so many things that are crying out for our attention. There's so many things that are causing us to, to have this noise inside, this inner cry that says, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need. It's like a child who only understands self-concern. And that's normal for a child. When a child is born, they only know how to communicate in one way. Something doesn't feel right. What do they do? What do they do? They cry. If they're uncomfortable, they cry. If they're hungry, they cry. If they're thirsty, they cry. If they're tired, they cry. Sounds a lot like me. <laughs> 
But that child, the self-concern turns into trust. Because as they begin to trust their mother, as the psalmist writes, their parents, then they begin to be able to grow up. And they begin to understand that, that there, there's really a contentment that's found in the provisions given to them by those who are responsible for them. This is a powerful picture of God's care within a mother. Beth Moore, she writes this from a woman's perspective, and I think it's incredibly powerful. She says, I'm deeply touched that all the metaphors God chose, that he chose one of a weaned child with his mother. Probably every mother would be deeply moved that God drew a picture of a toddler resting in maternal love. God's not insecure about his masculinity. He's not reluctant to use the picture of a mother's love for her child as we might imagine his care for us. God often likens his care to a parent and sometimes a mother to teach us that though he is but one parent and he is father, he's everything that we need. God's everything that we need. As a parent, we have the challenge, Christian parents, we have the challenge to raise our children up to where they become independent of us, but they grow more dependent upon God. That's a challenge. To, to raise our children in such a way that they become independent of us because an unweaned child is a child that's always dependent upon their parents. But, but a, a weaned child is a parent who says, no, th- this parent loves me. This, this mother cares for me, knows what's best for me. And so, so I can be in her presence and just enjoy it. I, I remember seeing pictures, I mean, just, just of, of my kids in, in my wife's arms when they were young and, and the contentment that's there. And that contentment is really that says, I don't want the things that my mother provides or I don't want the things that the father provides, but I just want him. I just want him. He's all I need. He's everything that we need. God is everything that we need. And a, a growing up in maturity means that we say, I don't just want the things of God. I don't want to cry when I don't get my way or the world doesn't work the way I want it to. But contentment says, God is enough. John Piper has this phrase. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. To the degree that you are satisfied in God is to the degree that you will glorify God. There's an application here, and the application here is that we should cultivate childlikeness. Not cultivate childishness. Cultivate childishness is to cultivate the the unweaned child, but to cultivate childlikeness is to cultivate trust in the Lord. Trust in Christ. Contentment in Christ. I want to ask you this question in the way of, do you cultivate intimacy with Jesus in your life? Do you cultivate a more intimate relationship with Christ? Because what you see in this brief verse is a relationship of intimacy with the child and the child's mother. Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? To where you know Him to where you love Him, to where you talk to Him, to where you pray to Him, to where you seek His truth 
through His Word and His will for your life so that you can walk in His ways. Nancy DeMoss Wilgamuth, she says, I face every day of my life the danger of neglecting intimacy with Christ. Here's the thing about intimacy with Christ. It doesn't just happen. It has to be cultivated. You don't drift into intimacy with Christ. You drift away from intimacy with Christ. If we're not being intentional in cultivating that love relationship with Him, then we're going to drift away. There's a cultivating of intimacy. One of the reasons why we asked our church members to write a devotional for this series is because we wanted through the Psalms of Ascent to cultivate intimacy with our relationship with Jesus. One of the reasons why we we go verse by verse through the book of the Bible is so that when you're home and you're reading your Scripture, you have a little idea of how to do it yourself. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist. And it's okay to say, "Uh, God, I really don't know what you're saying here. And just leave it there. And just say, God, help me understand your Word. You you don't have to, to, to have all the scriptural knowledge. You don't have to have a theological degree. But what you do have to have is a heart that beats for Jesus. And if you have a heart that beats for Jesus, then you will pursue after Jesus with intimacy. You'll converse with Him in prayer. You'll seek the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. You'll know that God is present with you. The third point here is that we must have confident trust in the humble King. Psalm 131, verse 3, O Lord, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the call of Israel. You've seen it repeated through the Psalms of Ascent. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. If we were to take the phrase Israel and import it into the New Testament, which Scripture actually does, it would be church. Hope in Christ. O church, hope in Christ. In the church... Uh, the church in the New Testament is called God's beloved, called God's chosen one, called God's holy one. The church is called saints. The church are the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, disciples. We are followers of Him. We are members of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That there is a work that is beyond Israel that God has done in order to make Israel not confined by geography or a nation, but Israel is in collection the people of God that declare His praise. As Peter says, it is we who He has made holy. He has made us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And it is we who are called to hope in Jesus Christ. And this hope in Jesus Christ is one to where we see on this first Sunday of Advent that if we want to look to humility, there's no greater example of humility than the example of Jesus. When we celebrate the coming of Christ and the birth of Christ, we remember that God voluntarily left His throne and He came down. And what did He do? He was born of a mother, his mom, Mary. He entrusted himself to her care. Jesus, at one point, believe it or not, was crying for his food, or when he was tired, or when he was uncomfortable. 
Jesus trusted his mother in the same way you and I have had to grow up and trust that God has given people to care for us. And that Jesus also lived a perfect sinless life and he died the sinner's death on the cross. And we see that in this confident trust in our humble king is the king who traveled up the hill. We talk about the Psalms of Ascent. We know that the Israelites traveled up the hill. They traveled up the mount, Mount Zion, to worship God. Well, Jesus Christ also went up Mount Calvary to be crucified. Worshiping God. Not something that was too great or too marvelous for him to attain. This was something that was a part of God's will for his life. And God's will for his life was that Jesus would be the sacrifice that would bring redemption to all the children of God. Like David, we must trust in Christ and the redemption that comes through him. David points to something greater. As David uh, recalls this psalm, we recall that David says of the Lord that there's one that's coming after him. That, that through the line of David, there would come the Lion of Judah. And the Lion of Judah would be David's great, 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 great grandson. And it was through him that God would set the people free. That there would be a true and better David. But this David would not set up shop and have a kingdom of this world, but, but this, kingdom would have a king, this king would have a kingdom of another world. And this king would lay down his life for his subjects. This is the power of the king's cross. And this is why we look at Jesus as our humble king, because what king would be crucified for his subjects? And we again wait this king's return as he makes the world right again. Jesus says in John 6, 38 through 40, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus knew that God entrusted him with Israel. And so Israel could put their hope in him. And because Jesus knew that God entrusted him with Israel, he would see to it that Israel is forever saved. And so when we put our trust in the Lord, O Israel, O church, we realize that we are doing it from this time forth and forevermore and our hope is in Christ and what he accomplished for us. So today, I offer you these words of Christ. You know, maybe today you're coming in with some struggle, some concern. Maybe you have an anxiety. There's this noise. There's not the quietness of soul, but you're still distracted. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Humility starts with coming to Christ and being honest about ourselves. 
And it's being honest about our need for Him. And right now, finding the contentment of Christ as He cares for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You, Lord, for um, the grace that You've given us right now. But Lord, here we are on this Sunday after Thanksgiving in the middle of a global pandemic. And God, we have life in our in our bodies, we have breath in our lungs, Lord. We have the ability to praise You. But Lord, help us see that, that life is so much more than what we think of it. That life is, is surrendering to You. It's being captivated by You. It's about cultivating intimacy with You. Cultivating childlikeness. God, that we would look with You with humble trust today. And that, God, you would make us a humble people, growing, God, in our faith and belief in you from this time forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.